The following podcast explores xenophobia, racism, discrimination, and some political commentary. The views expressed are my own personal opinions and are based on sources cited on the show notes and also on the podcast website. Do check out the reference links for further reading. Any misinterpretation of facts is unintentional and without malice. This episode was conceptualized before the COVID-19 outbreak, and therefore not much emphasis is given to the xenophobia surrounding it. Enjoy the episode, folks. Hello and welcome to yet another awesome episode of Living It Up in Lion City, a podcast about life in Singapore, where friends and I talk about what's happening on this little red dot we call home. My name is Rindo, and today we're going to talk about a very difficult and complicated topic, which is xenophobia in Singapore. In light of the ongoing coronavirus situation, fear and paranoia have gripped the island, fueling xenophobic sentiment and behavior towards people from China. The thing is, this xenophobia isn't new in Singapore. Those of us who live here know for a fact that there has been a rise in xenophobia and anti-foreigner sentiment in Singapore in the last decade, and it goes earlier than that even. The reasons are many, and the circumstances are certainly complex. I have been mulling over this topic for months. I've been so conflicted about how to talk about it, or whether I should talk about it at all, whether there is enough xenophobia to talk about even. I had long conversations with friends, both local and foreign, about the divide between Singaporeans and foreigners, about the causes and the effects just to get a balanced understanding of things. The current wave of xenophobia is directed at people from China, called PRCs here in Singapore. A few months before, it was directed at Indians, specifically Indian citizens living here. There is some background to it. In October 2019, a video of a man screaming at a security guard of a condominium went viral. The man, who is a house owner in the condominium, looked Indian, and the public outcry was immense. Anger, outrage, and calls to action came in thick and fast over his rudeness to a local security guard and over the classist behavior he exhibited by revealing how much he paid for the condo and directly implying that he was above HDB dwellers. HDB is short for Housing Development Board, which is a term used for public housing buildings where 85% of Singaporeans live. Social media went nuts for weeks, decrying his behavior and also his origins as an Indian, playing on the local stereotypes of Indian people as being mean, boorish, and uncultured. This snowballed into a larger conversation about the presence of foreigners in Singapore, how they are benefiting from the country at the expense of local Singaporeans for decades, purportedly because of government policies that were seemingly partial to foreigners, thus denying locals of jobs, opportunities, and self-esteem. On social media, there was widespread condemnation of Indian foreigners at large, and surprisingly, the xenophobia bled into real life. 
A protest was held at Honglim Park, where about 400 people showed up and expressed that dissatisfaction with the current government's policies of opening the floodgates to Indian foreigners. This warrants special note, especially in a country where public protest is very rare. As an Indian citizen myself, living here in Singapore, I watched this unfold with growing unease. What Ramesh Eramali, the rude condo owner, did was reprehensible, and I understand the outrage, but things took a xenophobic turn as the conversation eventually became less about him and evolved into something bigger, about Indian foreigners taking advantage of the system, about foreigners in general, and about Singaporeans' discontent with the current state of affairs. There is so much to cover. The history, the complexity of local identity, and the present narratives of Singaporean society. Yes, I know I am an Indian guy and a foreigner, no less, and I realize that this is a tricky subject to broach, especially because the local internet community does not take kindly to a foreigner being critical of Singapore or Singaporean society. But the vitriol against Indian people is getting extremely toxic in the online space, more than I'd ever seen in close to a decade. And I do believe it's important for foreigners like me to understand the hows and the whys of all this hate. I am committed to talking about it with clarity and with fairness, and hopefully we can see what's underneath the incendiary rhetoric that's dominating internet discourse in Singapore today. So I'll be covering this in three parts. One is the history of immigration in Singapore and a bunch of things that happened along the way. Two is going to be a closer look into the discomfort with foreigners in Singapore over the course of its existence. And three is going to be about how I, as a foreigner, an Indian foreigner no less, ought to navigate through the troubled waters of immigration, integration, and identity. Alright, so let's look at part one of the series on understanding xenophobia in Singapore, where I'll be covering the various significant events in Singapore's history that gradually built up the narrative of anti-foreigner sentiment that we are seeing today. The history of immigration in Singapore is fascinating and it is key to understanding Singapore's discomfort with foreigners. Now, let me just say that globally, xenophobia and nationalism have had a surge in popularity over the last decade, and the reasons are pretty straightforward. Large influx of foreigners, competition over resources, cultural incompatibility, etc, etc. Singapore is no different in this respect, but Singapore has had some unique circumstances going on over the last hundred years that adds an extra dimension to the conversation. Let's start with the colonial era, which is generally where the narrative of modern Singapore starts. Since Stamford Raffles set foot in Singapore and founded a British colony, Immigrants started arriving by the droves from all across the region, but mostly from China and India. These immigrant populations were put to work on the ports, in the plantations, and in the factories of a rapidly expanding economy in the island. From a humble number of a thousand people in 1819, the population ballooned to more than 10,000 in just five years. 
Chinese immigration especially exploded, and in less than a decade of the colony's founding, the Chinese population outnumbered the local Malay population. An interesting tidbit about the population during this period was that the Chinese and Indian migrant workers were overwhelmingly men. Most of the immigrants came to Singapore to work, and then went back home to their families after they were done. By the 1920s, more Chinese immigrants started planting their roots in the island, especially after the Chinese government at the time relaxed its penalties on leaving China, triggering a mass movement of Chinese women into Singapore. By the 1930s, Singapore was a bustling British trading port, and immigrants were coming in from all over the region. Too much, in fact. There was such a massive influx of migrant men and women from China that it riled up the local Malay people, the original inhabitants of Singapore. They were extremely pissed that they were being rapidly displaced by the Chinese population, and this was at the height of the Great Depression in the 1930s that swept across the world and affected economies and employment in all of the British colonies, Singapore most of all. To appease the growing resentment among the local population, the colonial British government curtailed the entry of Chinese men in 1933 and further tightened immigration on Chinese women in 1938 to dissuade settlers. When World War II broke out, things went pretty badly for Singapore. The imperialist Japanese forces invaded and captured the island in 1942 and thus began three years of famine, suffering and torture. The infrastructure that made Singapore an effective port was destroyed, and the island was left in a pitiful state by the time the Japanese finally surrendered in 1945. Even as the British administration returned to the island and tried to pick up and mend a very battered and bruised Singapore, poverty and food shortage was rampant. Corruption and unemployment reigned supreme. Its harbour activity picked up, but there was no way it could support any more people coming in. By 1953, all immigrants were effectively prohibited from entering Singapore, and the authorities only let in people from the Malayan Peninsula. By 1965, even that was cut off, as Singapore severed ties with Malaysia and became an independent nation. At this juncture, it is important to recognize the challenges that beset this newly formed island nation. Unemployment rates were alarming. High population growth was proving to be a challenge to public health and economic well-being, and much work needed to be done. The Prime Minister at the time, Lee Kuan Yew's key priority was to eradicate poverty and grow the economy big enough to support its people and he worked towards making that happen, bulldozing through hurdles with a relentless zeal. Immigration ground to a halt, and aggressive population control policies were instituted as early as 1965. Government initiatives like the Stop at Two policy exhorted Singaporeans to limit their families to two children. Abortion was legalized, and voluntary sterilization was encouraged. 
hospital bills grew with every additional child, and larger families had a lower priority in applying for HDB housing and admission to schools. These programs were wildly successful. In fact, devastatingly so. Within the span of two decades, Singapore went from dealing with overpopulation to grappling with plummeting birth rates, well below the global average. It was a problem in urbanized countries worldwide, but the overreaching policies of Singapore accelerated the decline. By the late 80s, the government desperately tried to reverse the drop and encourage the population to procreate, but by then it was too late. Subsequent efforts have been unsuccessful ever since. Lee Kuan Yew had always said that Singapore's greatest resource was people. But in the 1980s, predictive models showed that there wouldn't be enough of them. Singapore was a rapidly growing economy and needed people to run it, to fuel it, and so the only way to do so was through immigration. Lee Kuan Yew recognized from very early on that Singapore had to compete with an increasingly globalized economy and that too without any resources. He courted multinational companies to set up shop in Singapore, tempting them with a conducive business environment which then provided for Singaporeans with much-needed jobs in factories and oil industries. In fact, from the 1960s, oil and manufacturing were Singapore's largest industries. And then the oil crisis happened. The political machinations in the Middle Eastern countries caused the oil prices to plummet globally, and this crisis of 1974 severely affected Singapore's meteoric economic growth. The second oil crisis in 1979, and then the recession of 1985, jolted Singapore into the realization that relying on oil and manufacturing wasn't enough to survive, and the economy needed to diversify if it had any chance of a long-term future and sustained prosperity. Policymakers kicked into high gear, looking to diversify Singapore's industrialization strategy and thus began the great expansion into high-tech, finance, and service-based economic models. The era of foreign talent had begun. After the recession of 1985, Singapore aspired to be more than a country of factories and oil refineries. The leaders of Singapore had ambitions to make a globally competitive, knowledge-based economy out of the city-state, and to this end, conscious efforts were made to attract talent from other countries. The so-called foreign talent policies of the 1980s were intended to import skilled workers into the country to support and bolster the growing knowledge and service industries as part of the grand strategy to transform Singapore as a high-tech hub that would be recognized worldwide. There was a significant shift in how immigration worked in this period. Class-based immigration policies were put in place. 
highly skilled foreign talent had smooth immigration processes, a red carpet welcome of sorts, while the low-skilled labor was still highly restricted and transient. Foreign talent was given opportunities to integrate into society with hopes that they would contribute to Singapore's aspirations of being a global hub of industry and commerce. From a population of just 2% in the end of the 1970s, Singapore's foreigner population grew by 10% by the year 1990. The 90s was a dynamic period in Singapore. Under the helm of Prime Minister Go Chok Tong, there was an emphasis on developing arts, culture, media, and a number of things to make Singapore an international cultural mecca. To this end, foreign talent from all walks of life, especially in education, the arts, and media, were encouraged to move to Singapore. He envisioned the Global Schoolhouse Project, which was his dream of turning Singapore into a hub for regional and international education that would further bolster Singapore's economy and intellectual capital. In 1996, he said he wanted Singapore to be the Boston of the East, where the local universities would be on the same standing as the global greats like Harvard and the MIT. This vision set a target of having a critical mass of 150,000 students a year, with an aim to appropriate a slice of the world education industry pie, which was estimated to be $2.2 trillion. There was big money to be made. Singapore also sought to make its mark in the international sports scene. The Foreign Sports Talent Program, or the FSTS, was launched in 1993, bringing in high-caliber athletes from foreign countries to bolster the national sports teams and raise local sporting standards. Exceptional athletes were invited to become Singaporean citizens and to establish roots in the country. Both the educated and the skilled variety, aka the foreign talent, and the unskilled labor called foreign workers, rose in numbers this decade. Particularly noteworthy was the rise in migrant worker numbers from so-called non-traditional sources, like India, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka, on top of the usual numbers from China. It's very indicative that even back then, in the mid-1990s, the discomfort over foreigners was apparent. Letters to the Straits Times newspaper complained of the sinification of multicultural neighborhoods like Geelong, which was attractive to migrant workers for affordable rent. Prostitution flourished in these areas and added to the local discomfort that vice was being imported along with cheap foreign labor. Complaints were also of the classist variety, citing the increasing numbers of migrant workers being seen in the high-end shopping districts with justifications like cultural incompatibility and fears that low-income pedestrians loitering around would drive away business. The 1990s saw HDB prices increase manifold and Singaporeans were feeling the pinch. Housing-related grouses started popping up too. In 1997, the Economic Development Board established a scheme for short-term housing for foreign talent called SHIFT. This scheme was an attempt to alleviate the difficulties in renting. 
Singapore at the time had significant restrictions on renting to foreigners. These shift estates were strategically placed close to universities and science parks. Now, there have been stories circulated of local professors being denied accommodation in these estates. And this fueled the perception that the government was favoring expats at the expense of locals who were already grappling with rising home prices and costs of living. By the year 2000, Singapore's population was 4 million, and foreigners made up 20% of that. Singapore continued its growth story in the 2000s, and with it a greater need for immigrant labour. Singaporean society had become predominantly middle class. Job expectations for people leaned towards high-value occupations and shunned lower-income jobs. There was a shortage of local manpower in these jobs, and so they were readily filled by semi-skilled migrants from China. One interesting point to note is that from the 1980s till the early 2000s, PRC migrants were designated to what were called 3D jobs, the 3D being dirty, dangerous, and demeaning. These included jobs in construction and public works and were historically invisible in contemporary social discourse. Once the PRC migrants started taking up jobs as FNB service workers, as sales attendants, as cashiers, cleaners, postmen, and bus drivers, they became part of the public face of the city and thus part of social discourse. Local sentiment wasn't particularly welcome of that, partly because of prevailing stereotypes, partly because of perceived cultural erosion, and partly surprise that low-skilled PRC migrants were encroaching into spaces not meant for them. A steady stream of grumbling could be heard in Singaporean society on the topic of foreigners. The internet helped facilitate the spread of such opinions, and certain narratives started emerging that Chinese migrant populations were coming in faster than they were integrating, that foreign students were given scholarships more than local students, that foreign sportsmen and women brought in through the FSTS weren't loyal to Singapore, that Caucasian expats were being paid more than locals, and so on. The archived threads in bulletin board forums like SG Cafe, SG Forums, and Sammy Boy from 1999 all the way through the 2000s make for fascinating reading, and they highlight the discomfort over foreigners being at an advantage over locals in employment, in housing, and in personal relationships too. Mind you, these were commonly held opinions, but they didn't get mainstream popularity yet. That changed when Go Chok Tong stepped down as Prime Minister and ushered in the new blood, Lee Sien Lung. Lee Sien Lung became Prime Minister in 2004, and from the get-go, he emphasized the need for quality foreign talent and was generally pro-immigration. 
Singapore's ambitions lay in expanding trade, commerce, and industry beyond its confines, and to this end, it sought trade agreements with the region. In 2005, the biggest of them was the Comprehensive Economic Cooperation Agreement with India called CECA or SECA. This allowed Singaporean industries to access the behemoth that is India's market, plus easing of trade restrictions. The agreement also outlined a more streamlined immigration process for skilled individuals from either country. The following years saw a significant increase in the foreigner population. Between the years 2005 and 2007, about 90,000 foreigners were given permanent residency statuses each year, as compared to the annual count of 30,000 in the years before. The significant spike in foreigner population wasn't immediately criticized. After all, business was booming, companies were expanding, jobs were aplenty, and Singaporeans were getting richer than ever. Uh, things were going good. And then, the global economic crisis of 2008 hit Singapore. And it hit the island hard. So many people lost entire life savings in investments that were tied to US assets. Singapore's sovereign funds took a hardcore beating too. Global supply chains were massively disrupted and companies shut down left and right. People were fired by the thousands. Conservative estimates suggest that 25,000 people lost their jobs in this period, while on-the-ground opinions believe it's much higher. A friend who lived through this period recounted a day where he, along with scores of others, were thrown out of their offices in Raffles Place and not let back in. The business district was in absolute chaos. Retrenchments, hiring freezes, and wage cuts were the order of the day. The Time magazine at the time hypothesized that at least 10% of the workforce had to accept wage cuts. That's a crazy number. In, in all due fairness, the government implemented relief measures to help salvage the sordid state of Singapore's economy, and to its credit, Singapore bounced back faster than most other Asian countries by 2010, but the shockwaves of this recession seriously fucked with the collective psyche. Unlike the previous economic crises that Singapore weathered through over the decades, this one was in the time of growing internet use. Previously, rants against foreigners were limited to coffee shops and letters to the Straits Times. In the 2000s, Singaporeans used bulletin boards and blogs to vent, to connect, and to commiserate their fate in a freewheeling capitalist system that had seemingly forsaken them. On top of it all, fault lines in the immigration policies and previously ignored malpractices became center of attention. Malpractices like discriminatory hiring by employers who sidestepped potential local candidates and favored cheaper foreign labor. The extremely common practice of hiring ghost workers, which was padding up the number of Singaporeans being hired in order to justify getting more foreign labor, that process came under scrutiny. 
The modern conversations around anti-foreigner sentiments that we see today in Singapore started at this point. Almost every failing of society was attributed to either the influx of foreigners or to the government that seemingly put foreigners on a pedestal while throwing Singaporeans under the bus, so to speak. People got loud and things got political. The fringe opinions I talked about earlier became part of the mainstream conversation and got a lot more social currency. Adding more fuel to the fire, a number of anecdotes spread around involving Chinese and Indian new citizens giving up their Singaporean citizenship in order to move to more prosperous countries in the West. These stories shaped the stepping stone narrative. The notion was that immigrants from poorer countries would come to Singapore, reap the benefits that the Singaporean government offered them, and they would get permanent residency and citizenship, and they would then leave Singapore without giving back to the country that gave them so much. This dovetailed with complaints of PRC students leaving the country without fulfilling their scholarship bonds, taking advantage of the scholarship schemes Singapore offered them. The numbers are nominal, but the anecdotes just became larger than life. The anger against PRC foreign talent was a follow-up from 2008 when Singapore won an Olympic silver in the Beijing Olympics for table tennis. One of the players in the team, Li Jianwei, sparked outrage when she said she saw herself as a Chinese national more than a Singaporean. She and her team were brought in from China under the Foreign Sports Talent Scheme and were made Singaporean citizens very quickly, so her statements on Chinese television where she identified as Zhongguoren first riled up the local population. The PAP party still won the elections in 2011, but by a margin that was much lower than before, and they had to revise their previously liberal immigration policies. The idea that foreigners were ruining Singapore for Singaporeans became entrenched in the social consciousness at this point. Stories of foreigners being dicks were extremely popular on the internet, playing to various stereotypes depending on national origin. Even with all this, I must emphasize that the xenophobia did not translate into hate speech or violence just yet. It was a case of local Singaporeans being angry at the state of affairs, and at the same time there was still a healthy fear of the government's internet watchdogs arresting them for spreading hate or disrupting social harmony, something which Singaporean authorities enforced regularly. The ugly shit did come out though during the Ferrari incident. In the year 2012, a Ferrari sports car ran a red light and rammed into a taxi cab, instantly killing both drivers. The driver of the Ferrari was a wealthy Chinese national, while the taxi driver was an old Singaporean. In online discourse, the case presented itself as a perfect example of how Chinese nationals destroy Singaporeans with their wealth and their arrogance. A year later, shit got uglier. The Singapore government released a white paper on its population strategy in 2013. In this report, there was a projection that Singapore needed to reach a population of 6.9 million people by the year 2030 to fuel its economy, and in order to counter falling birth rates, there needed to be an immigration quota of 100,000 people a year. 
What I saw during that time wasn't resentment among the locals. It was fury. Around 4,000 people showed up at a park to protest the white paper, making this the largest protest in Singapore's history. In a country where public protests don't happen at all, this was huge. The resentment that was bubbling under the surface for years burst forth about overpopulation, rising costs of living, failing public transportation, a seemingly unresponsive government, everything. Amidst all this, the hate against foreigners started translating into ugly personal incidents on the street. An egregious example of this was the controversy in 2014 over the Philippines Day celebrations that was being organized by Filipinos living in Singapore. The online reaction to the Facebook event was incendiary. Thousands objected to using the Marina Bay Sands building iconography in the event banner and the use of the word interdependence to describe the relationship between Singapore and the Philippines. The organizers of the event received death threats and the hatred got so bad that Prime Minister Lee Hsien Lung had to put out a statement on Facebook denouncing the haters. Over the years, the Singapore government has been clamping down on immigration significantly, reducing the quota for permanent residents, raising the bar for skilled immigrants, and enforcing policies like the Fair Consideration Framework so that Singaporeans don't get shortchanged in job opportunities. It has been a long and tough balancing act, juggling the needs of Singaporean society while at the same time holding on to its aspirations as a global hub of trade and commerce. As of 2019, foreigners comprise 40% of Singapore's population. At this point, the anti-foreigner narrative is so entrenched in the Singaporean psyche that I'm not sure if the government will win any points with the local populace no matter what they do. Every year, there's a new story about something a foreigner did, and the xenophobic narrative digs its ugly feet deeper into Singaporean soil. The incident in 2019 between Ramesh Eramalli and the security guard deserves special mention because that viral video triggered a national conversation that ended up being a protest with 400 people denouncing Singapore's trade agreement with India and denouncing foreigners in general. The protest was live-streamed, and I watched all four hours of it with growing unease. Hateful words were said, racist stereotypes were used to make questionable points, and there was so much anger. A key thing that I observed was that while Ramesh and the presence of Indians in Singapore was the focus of the protesters' anger, the people who spoke up on the stage brought up everything from CPF to national service to how the government was not listening and uncaring of regular Singaporeans. I got the feeling that the anti-foreigner sentiment is more a proxy for the dissatisfaction with the current government. But more on that later. I have run on long enough as it is, and to sum up, I want to say that Singapore's discomfort with foreigners is not new. A lot of things happened over the decades that built up the xenophobia we're seeing today. To my friends who are foreigners living in Singapore, I urge you to know and understand the history to make sense of what Singaporeans feel and why they feel the way they do. I hope this podcast episode has been helpful to you. To my Singaporean friends, I hope I've been fair and accurate in describing the history of your country and the various events. 
If I made any mistakes in the telling, please let me know. I will be including the sources that I used in the podcast website, so please check it out. Uh, a lot of them make for very interesting reading. In the next part of the series, I will be doing a closer analysis on the reasons and the rationale behind xenophobia in the Singaporean context and try to understand the underlying issues around immigration, integration, and identity. If you have any questions about this episode, please let me know. DM me on Instagram or Facebook, and I'd love to have a chat. This podcast is available on all popular podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, etc., etc. Subscribe to it for future episodes, and I hope you're looking forward to the next episode on Understanding Xenophobia in Singapore, which will be dropping next week. Until then, my name is Rindo, and you were listening to Living It Up in Lion City. Music